0: So picking up halfway through uh, Mark's gospel, um, so we have to sort of recall where we've been. The big question in part one, which was chapters uh, one to eight that we looked at in term two, the big question in Mark one in, in uh, sorry, part one, uh, is really about Jesus' identity. Uh, the disciples remember that there's two journeys going on in Mark's gospel. There's the journey of Jesus himself, uh, a journey to the cross uh, but there's also the journey of the disciples with Jesus and we're meant to go on both journeys. We're meant to uh, learn uh, through the story of Jesus uh, about his identity but we're also meant to learn what it means to follow Jesus as we follow along uh, with the disciples. Uh, And in part two uh, we discover this first question, what kind of man is this? who is Jesus, in part two we discover that that question can really only be answered if we understand his mission. So there's the question about the man, but you can't understand the man unless you understand his mission. And that's what part two of Mark's Gospel is really about, this mission that Jesus is on. What is it that he has come to do? What has he come to achieve? And when we understand that, then we'll have a full and fruitful understanding of his identity as well. Uh, So let's pray that God would give us understanding. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word just read for us. Uh, We thank you that uh, 2,000 years ago or thereabouts it was recorded for us, these true events of the life of Jesus. And we thank you that it's been preserved for us so that we can read it and study it today. We ask for your spirit, uh, his enabling now, enabling us to understand uh, what the disciples didn't at first understand, uh, help us to see uh, through their eyes and learn what they uh, also eventually came to learn about Jesus, that we might believe in him. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, after three weeks and over three and a half thousand kilometres, the Tour de France ends tonight. Now I know you've all been up late nights every night for the last three weeks just like I have or at least catching up with the highlights uh, in the morning. Uh, it's a fa- I find it uh, as a cyclist perhaps, a fascinating uh, journey this uh, romp around France And uh, there's all sorts of different stages, you know, there are flat stages, there are hilly stages, uh, there are stages that are made for the sprinters and stages that are made for the punches and the rollers and anyway, it's all cycling language. But the action really happens, the real action happens in the mountains. It's in the mountains that the real drama happens and the race is won and lost. Every year it's always... Uh, in the climb up a mountain, that the cream rises to the top, uh, that the guys who are the real contenders uh, reveal themselves. And so it is in the Bible. Uh, It's often on a mountain. Uh, It's often up there that uh, the real action takes place. And we uh, discover uh, uh, the decisive moments as well. It's it's where they take place. And so it is uh, in today's passage, uh, as Jesus climbs up a mountain. It's not a race. I don't think it was anyway. Uh, I don't think he said to the disciples, hey, fellas, race you to the top. Um, And yet uh, on this mountain, uh, something very dramatic takes place. Now, I don't think there are actually, and this might surprise you to think about this, but I don't think there are that many moments in the Gospel, in Mark's Gospel at least, that if it was a movie would require special effects. I mean, there's lots of miracles, but they're the kinds of thing that wouldn't really require special effects, uh, most of them, healing miracles for example, you could just sort of make it look like someone you know, got better that sort of thing. Uh, feeding the 5,000, you could just sort of cut and pan and, you know, say, well, where did all this food come from? But there are a few moments, and this is one of them, that I think could not be done uh, without special effects. It's fantastic. It's, it's almost bizarre what happens on top of the mountain. What is it all about? You might be familiar with this story, this story known as the transfiguration, a word that is never used of anything any other time. It's a once-in-history moment, the transfiguration. What is it all about? Well, in one sense, that's obvious. It's all about the glory of Jesus, isn't it? It's all about the glory of Jesus being revealed. It's a glory that is all his own. It's a glory that comes from within. Unlike has happened on another mountain, it's not the reflected glory of God that Moses shone with when he came down the mountain from his meeting. And we'll think more about that experience a little later. But this is Jesus' very own glory revealed for a very select few. But why is it here? Why does Jesus do this? Why does he go up the mountain with Peter, James, and John and reveal his glory? Well, I think that there are a few helpful clues in the passage. Uh, So chapter 9, verse 2, we read that after six days, Jesus took the three, Peter, James, and John with him, and he led them up a high mountain where they were all alone, and there he was transfigured before them. Now I think that often I've read this and thought that the transfiguration was something that happened to Jesus. But actually when you read that, it sounds a lot like Jesus is being very intentional. It's his idea to take just Peter, James and John up the mountain and it seems that he's doing it on purpose. Hey fellas, come up here, follow me, I want to show you something. Now, why would he want Peter, James, and John to see this? Well, I think it's because he wanted them to be certain of his glory, which is really important uh, important for them, because just like Moses, who also experienced the glory of God up on a mountain, these guys would have the job of leading God's people, wouldn't they? Peter, James, and John... They were the three key leaders out of the 12 disciples who would lead the church into the future and it was very important that they be absolutely convinced of the glory of Jesus if they were going to do that. Uh, I also think that the timing is likely in response to what has just happened, to what has gone before. It's in response to their confusion about the suffering that he has just foretold. Do you remember that? It's a while ago now. But uh, in the, at the end of chapter 8 uh, was where Jesus explained after Peter had said, you are the Messiah, Jesus explained what it would mean for him to be the Messiah. That yes, he was the Messiah and the Messiah had to suffer. That The Messiah had to be rejected and suffer on behalf of the people. Uh, Peter was taken aback by that, and uh, I imagine that Peter was simply, as was often the case, the mouthpiece of the rest of the disciples. They were all confused. How could the Messiah suffer? And I think that Jesus wanted to help them understand that even though, yes, the the Messiah would suffer, yet Jesus was also uh, the glorious Messiah, The disciples can't grasp how victory and suffering go together. And because Jesus has been insisting and will continue to insist that he will indeed suffer, and so must they, he also wants to assure them, reassure them of his glory. So I think that uh, what Jesus is doing fits that context, that moment. So it's a reassurance that Jesus is God's Messiah. Whatever he does and whatever happens to him, no matter how bad it looks, he is God's Messiah. And having this experience, Peter, James and John would have held on to it and been reassured of Jesus' glorious identity, even through the trials of the days and weeks and months ahead. The second bizarre thing, though, it's not just what happens to Jesus, this kind of blinding transfiguration. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. No matter what product he's ever developed, this was brighter. But that's not the only amazing thing that happened. Uh, As well as that, up on this mountain, two dead prophets show up for a chat, although they seem very much alive. In verse 4 we read, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. What's that all about? Well, if we continue with the idea that Jesus actually knew exactly what he was doing in taking the three up the mountain and being transfigured before them, is it possible that Jesus, Messiah and glorious Son of Man that he is, might have actually summoned these two Old Testament heroes? That they didn't just kind of appear of their own accord, but that he arranged this meeting? Now, why would he do that? Well, I think that their appearance, Moses and Elijah, is at at least, at the very least, an endorsement of who Jesus is and of his authority, his standing, his status. See, Moses and Elijah represent in the Old Testament the law, Moses, the law of Moses, as it was often called, and the prophets. Elijah was perhaps the most famous of all the Old Testament prophets, bar perhaps Moses himself. And so here, up on the mountain, Jesus in all his glory is also in elite company indeed. But it's probably also meant to call to mind... Another mountaintop experience recorded in Scripture to which I've already alluded, that experience of Moses up on the mountain in Exodus and also recorded in Deuteronomy where he received the law of God and met uh, God on the mountain. Up there, when Moses met God on the mountain again, just as happened here, uh, there was a cloud that descended on the mountain and God was in the cloud and the voice of God was heard from the cloud. And so it happens here in verse 7, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And so I think we're meant to recall that event that happened uh, when Moses was on the mountain in Exodus. But the similarities are intended to highlight also the differences See, here, Jesus isn't having an experience like Moses, where Jesus is meeting with God. Rather, Jesus is actually completing the experience of Moses. On Mount Sinai, Moses had asked to see God's glory. And God did allow him to see his glory, but only the trailing edge of it. You remember the story? Moses was placed in a cleft in the rock, and God passed by that cleft and put his hand over it so that as he passed, Moses was shielded from the glory of God and just got to experience him as he passed by, announcing his name and his attributes. Only allowed to glimpse from behind, but here in his encounter with Jesus, Moses' request, his wish, his desire to see the glory of God is in fact granted. He and Elijah and, in fact, Peter and James and John are allowed to behold God in his brilliant glory, face to face. What an incredible privilege. But the transfiguration isn't only about what the three disciples see. It's also about what they hear. This voice that comes from the cloud is a voice for them. And if what they they saw didn't make it clear enough, what they hear leaves no doubt that Moses and Elijah, well, they're really just supporting actors in this cast. Jesus is the star of the show. What is it that the voice says to them? This is my son. There's three of them there, remember, but the voice only refers to one. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now, we've heard words like this from heaven before in Mark's Gospel. Very similar, in fact. Way back in chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism, you might remember that when he was baptised, the heavens opened up and and a dove descended on him, the Spirit of God, and a voice from heaven declared to Jesus, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. But now the voice though it says something similar, is not addressed to Jesus but to the disciples. The word is to them, this is my son. Not you are my son, but this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And in that command, again, there are actually echoes of what happened on Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, as those events are recounted, we read, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. That's who Jesus is. The one who Moses said would come after him, a prophet like him, and yet so much greater, greater than any prophet, and it's Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And the disciples are left in no doubt about his significance. And then it's almost like they wake from a dream, although it wasn't a dream. Verse 8, suddenly they looked around and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Yes, Moses spoke the word of God yes elijah spoke the word of god as did all the law and all the prophets but now there's just jesus listen to him and what was it that they needed to hear from jesus well i think it's not a an accident that this story is sandwiched in between Jesus declaring the necessity of his suffering and his death and his resurrection. In other words, of Jesus making clear his mission for the disciples. It's his mission that they need to understand. It's the gospel. It's that Jesus has come to die for sins and for sinners. That Jesus has come to restore the world he has come to, yes, be crowned the king, but first he must suffer. That's what they need to hear. That's what they need to understand. As Jesus repeats his mission three times, he repeats the same lines to them. And it's that that they're to listen to and to understand. They need to understand that Jesus was both the glorious Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 and the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is both. His glory is revealed on the mountain, but the story is between him declaring the need for his suffering. So that's what happens up on the mountain, a great moment. But unfortunately, what goes up must come down. And both on the journey down the mountain and in the scene at the bottom, it's clear that the disciples, in their understanding, are making very slow progress, if any at all. So on the way down the mountain, the focus shifts from Moses to Elijah, but it seems that though the disciples were listening, they weren't understanding They've seen Elijah up there and they've heard Jesus then talk about rising from the dead and they've put two and two together and come up with an elephant or something. Uh, They ask Jesus, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Maybe they think that Elijah's appearance on the mountain is some kind of trigger for Jesus' mission. And Jesus does agree that Elijah must come first, but... It's like he's saying, but guys, you missed him. <laughs> he did come. He's come already. And Jesus is referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the Elijah that was to come first. And he has come and he has gone. Been and gone. And so, what we as readers have actually known uh, since chapter one, as John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, the disciples are still figuring out. It's like they've been left on the starting blocks and they're still waiting for the gun to go off. These disciples, though shown great favour and privilege by Jesus, are making very slow progress in both understanding who he is and who they are called to be as his followers. And that's true both of the three who went up the mountain and of the nine who stayed down below. And here in the story of what happens on the valley or on the plain Uh, the allusion to the events of Mount Sinai, of Moses on the mountain, continue. Because you may remember that just as uh, Moses and Aaron came down the mountain uh, to a scene of unbelief, with the story of the golden calf, Israel worshipping the golden calf because they don't know what's happened to Moses and who will lead them, and they make an idol... Well, so Jesus also descends from the mountain with his disciples to a scene of unbelief. It's the key feature of what's happening down below, isn't it? Unbelief. Uh, they come down the mountain and there there's an argument, there's a big hullabaloo going on, there's an argument between the teachers of the law and the disciples. And it turns out that uh, there's a man who has brought his a son who's possessed by an impure spirit and the disciples uh, have been unable to heal him. Now it's hard to tell at first exactly who Jesus is upset with. It's clear that he is upset. Verse 19, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Clearly he's upset quite generally with the situation of Israel. And yet I think more specifically it's the disciples, the nine who were left down the mountain, the nine who have had some success in casting out demons previously but here are unable to get rid of this spirit. They're the ones who have failed the test. And Jesus puts his finger on their failure and that is that they haven't put their faith in God into action by praying. You notice that at the end they ask, why, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replies, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now it's difficult to know exactly what Jesus means by this kind. We can guess, but I don't think we can be certain. But regardless, the reason that they couldn't do it is because it appears they hadn't Prayed. In other words, they hadn't asked God to do what only God can do. They hadn't put their faith in God into action by praying. But in contrast, there is another character in this little story who does put his faith, weak as it is, into action. Who does, in fact, pray, even though perhaps he didn't know that he was praying at the time. And that is the dad, the dad in the story, who accepts Christ's rebuke. He asks, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. He admits his lack of faith and he appeals to Jesus for help. He prays. That's praying, isn't it? Asking God for something. That's what he did. Help my son, he prayed. If you can, help my son. And then again he prayed, help me trust you. Help me believe. And it seems that Jesus answers both prayers in one go. In healing the son, he obviously answers the first prayer, but he also reveals his power to the father, to the dad, and helps him to believe. Now it's easy when we know the whole story, when we know how Jesus goes to the cross, and when we know that after the cross he rises from the grave. It's easy to look at the disciples and their bumbling failures and think, what dummies. But do you ever catch a glimpse of Jesus' glory? Have you ever felt like you've had had some grasp of the glory of Jesus and then failed to follow up appropriately, failed to live in the following... Hours and days and weeks and months and years as if Jesus is the glorious Son of God, worthy of all worship, worthy of all your trust. Don't we all do that? Don't we all do that all the time? Now you might think, oh yeah, but if I had been on that mountain, if I'd seen Jesus transfigured, I would never be the same again. Do we see any less glory when we encounter Christ in the scriptures? no we don't we see him as he truly is through the gift of the spirit and yet we too fail to walk in uh, appropriate faith when here are some examples when god gives you a chance to acknowledge the greatness of jesus do you always come up with a great line or do you blurt out something like peter on the mountain let's put up some tents We're not great witnesses to the glory of Jesus, are we? Sometimes we don't say anything at all. Do you ever read something in the Bible and think, well, I don't really know what all that's about. We don't understand every time we encounter Jesus in the scriptures what it's all about. And when life gets challenging, do you instinctively turn straight to prayer? Or do you first dabble in trying to fix things up yourself? And then very belatedly, perhaps even as a last resort, turn to God. The disciples' struggles of faith aren't here for us to make fun of them. Rather, they hold up a mirror to us so that we too will see our unbelief, even in the midst of our faith. You see, there's there's faith that saves and then there's the faith that we're to walk out every day of our lives, isn't there? And so though we might be saved people, though we might believe, still there's a struggle to believe each day, isn't there? And so with the dad in the story, we're encouraged to cry out, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. To cry out that prayer. And it's a prayer that God loves to answer. Help is available. The same help that was available to Jesus' disciples. Listen to him, they were commanded. And so are we. In order to trust in Jesus, it requires us knowing who he is. And in order to know who he is, we need to understand his mission. We've got to remember that for Jesus, the road to glory did pass through a valley of suffering For our sake. He is glorious and he did suffer. That our Lord, who now reigns in heaven, was once our servant, and that the cross came before the crown. It's when we remember all that Jesus willingly went through for us, then we will trust him. And it's when we remember that his mission was a resounding success, that all things are possible for those who believe, then we will trust him. But let's be clear about what that means all things are possible for those who believe. It's that all things are possible for Jesus, and it's up to us to believe. See, he's the one that acts, isn't he? He's the one who casts out the demon. They were called to pray. They were called to trust in his power and to put that trust into action by praying in the one for whom all things are possible. And we are encouraged to do the same, to believe, to act out our belief in prayer. Prayer. And to know that all things are possible for Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, each one of us, if we understand ourselves truly and if we are honest with you, can easily repeat the prayer of the Father in this story. We believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. Our faith is weak. We look to our own resources instead of looking to your unlimited resources. We find it hard to depend on you and on you alone. We try to achieve for ourselves what is really only in your domain to achieve. Father, help us to look to Jesus, to see in him one who is both able and willing For whom all things are possible. Help us to place our trust firmly in him. Each day, each moment, in every experience, in every difficulty that we encounter. In every uh, failure that we experience. Every time we give in to temptation. Help us to look to Jesus. Jesus, who loves us and who has conquered for us. And we ask in his name, amen.